fair to say that the Bible teaches that we serve one God who exists eternally in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, I would like to actually look at the Baptist Confession as we read through that because I want to see the doctrinal statement from the Baptist Confession in regards to what it actually says on the Trinity. Um, if you have it on your phone or if you have a, a paper, paperback copy near you, um, it's in chapter 2. <clears throat> and I'm going to read through this. The Lord our God is one, the only living and true God. He is self-existent and infinite in being and perfection. His essence cannot be understood by anyone but him. He is a perfectly pure spirit. He is invisible and has no body, parts, or changeable emotions. He alone has immortality, dwelling in light that no one could approach. He is unchangeable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, in every way infinite, absolutely holy, perfectly wise, holy, free, completely absolute. He works all things according to the counsel of his unchangeable will uh, for his own glory. He is most loving, gracious, merciful, patient, he overflows with goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. He rewards those who seek him diligently. At the same time, he is perfectly just and terrifying in his judgment. He hates all sin and will certainly not clear the guilty. Then I'm moving on to part three. We define this one God. Now, this divine and infinite being consists of three real persons, the Father, the Word, or the Son, and the Holy Spirit. These three have the same substance, Power and eternity, each having the whole divine essence without this essence being divided. The Father is not derived from anyone, neither begotten nor proceeding. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father, and the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. All three are infinite without being and are therefore only one God, who is not to be divided in nature and being. Yet these three are distinguished by several distinctive characteristics and personal relations truth of the Trinity is the foundation of all our fellowship with God and our comforting dependence on him. And so we see that this is a fundamental orthodox truth that cannot be negotiated or compromised. Any compromising on the doctrine of the Trinity, then you are off. You are, you are preaching another gospel. And as we'll see, if we can get have time for it, there are many different versions of Christianity out there that preach this kind of gospel. Can anybody tell me a popular preacher out there who's on TV that doesn't believe in the Trinity? T.D. Snake. T.D. Jakes, yeah, one of them. Very good. Although I, I, think, I think he recanted, but I'm not sure. But, he's a he's a, but for the most part, as far as I know, he's a modalist. We'll, we'll cover that later. Anyone? Who? Never heard of him. Geno Jennings. Anyone ever hear of him? Okay. 
Oneness Pentecostal, very good. Anyone else? Winston, go home and look this up on the internet. Joyce Mayer doesn't believe in the Trinity. Yeah, most of the Word of Faith teachers undermine the doctrine of the Trinity. They have a false view of the Trinity. This is very true. Um, and so there are many. The Oneness Pentecostals are, are more common than you think. And uh, years ago, in Grace and Truth, we had a woman who came into our church to visit, and she was of that mindset. And uh, we were in Yonkers at the time. She was going up to one person, one by one, convincing them that you need to be baptized in the name of Jesus. It's not enough to be baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And one by one. So finally she got to me, and we had a long discussion, and she would not relent. She says, I'm on a mission here, and I'm going to tell everybody here about this. I said, no, you're not. I said, you're welcome to worship here, but that's a heresy, and we deny it, we reject it. And you're welcome to fellowship here, but if you keep spreading this heresy, if you can want to continue doing it, you're not welcome here says, well, I'm going to keep doing it. I says, well, then you can excuse yourself. You're not welcome here no more. And she did leave. And that's the job of the pastor, is to guard the flock. When you see any erroneous doctrine that comes into the church, you correct it gently with, uh, with love and, and, and care. But if the person refuses to cooperate, then they're a wolf. The Bible tells us that wolves come in sheep's clothing and they devour sheep. Shepherd's role to protect the sheep from wolves. I hope I do my job correctly. I'm not always good at it, but I try. So now we get to this doctrine, we have to see um, what we are discussing in terms of, of the Trinity. Now, we know that there's one God who internally coexists in three persons, and each person is fully God. God is not divided into three beings. It is one God, three distinct persons, not beings. One being, one God, one essence, one substance. The triune God may have a three persons or personalities. And so with that said, we have to see that all three persons of the Godhead are fully and equally God. The first being God the Father. I don't think there would be any argument here from anyone to say that God the Father is not God. When we think of God, we think of God the Father. As I check, check, check. today, when we think about praying to God the Father and, to, um, and thanking God the Father, we see that it is God the Father um, who eternally exists. Okay, we're trying out this. I want to shed these microphones and get the lapel one now. All right, can you hear me? All right, very good. All right, so we, we, I don't think there's any uh, dispute on the deity of the Father. But where the disputes do come in is the deity of the Son and the deity of the Spirit. In fact, these were disputes that, that existed from the very beginning. In Christ's public ministry, um, any, any uh, uh, hint or inkling of his divine being was met with, with uh, uh, objections, was met with hostility. Uh, the Pharisees clearly knew that uh, he was identifying himself as one with the Father, and they took great issue with it at the end of the day. That's why they crucified him. But we know that the scripture teaches us that Christ is 
not only the eternal Son of God who coexisted with the Father and has no beginning and no end, but that in Him the fullness of deity dwells bodily. We're going to learn that in Colossians chapter 2 shortly. So what do we see what Scripture tells us about the Son? Well, let's, let's, again, let's do some look through Scripture. I won't be able to cover all of it because there's a lot to cover, but I will do as much as I can with the time allotted to me, with my portion and inheritance. Um, John chapter 1, verses 1 through 2. I think we all know this very well. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 2. And we read this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And this light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The word of God, the eternal logos. The word word there means logos in Greek, the expression of God. It is God's verbal expression. And we know that, that when we talk about the eternal Son revealed as the Word, He is the very expression of the Father. He was not only with God the Father, but He is God Himself. And if there's any book that testifies of the deity of Christ, it's the Gospel of John. And that's the whole purpose. John writes at the end of the book, I wrote this so that you may believe that Jesus is the Son of God. It's so that you may have faith, you may believe. This idea of Christ being the expression of God, the Word of God, the Logos of God, uh, tells us not only that He was God, but that all things were made through Him. It goes right back to creation. That Christ the Son is the agent of creation. It was God the Father who decreed, but it was the, the Son who brought about creation. Look in Colossians 1, which I'll be preaching on next week. Getting a little feedback there. There we go. In Colossians 1, verse 15, he is the, speaking of Christ, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers, authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. In Colossians chapter 2, one chapter over, verse 9, we see the same thing reiterated. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. He is, when we go back to the beginning, and God said, let there be light. Who spoke forth that very word? It was God the Son. In fact, every revelation of God in the Old Testament is, is Christ. That is because no one has ever seen the Father or heard the Father except Christ the Son. The Son has seen the Father and he reveals the Father to us. In uh, Hebrews chapter 1, because he, we, we, we call Jesus the Word, the eternal Word, because it is how God speaks to us. Hebrews 1.1, 1, 1, long ago, many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers. He spoke to the prophets. But in these last days, he spoke to us 
through his son, by his son rather, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. Again, we're getting back to the creation narrative. It is, it is through Christ the world is created. He is the expression of God. Notice what it says in verse 3. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. How could you deny the deity of Christ? Look in John 14. still have a remnant of that cold, but much better than last week. I think last week my voice gave out at this point, right? Look at uh, uh, 14.8, 14.8 of John's Gospel. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Or as the King James Version says, it sufficeth. Say that three times, it sufficeth. It sufficeth. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me the fa- has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am with the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak of my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or else believe on the count of the works themselves. And so you see here that Jesus is the direct revelation of God the Father. There is no show me the Father. We won't see the Father till we get to heaven. No one will ever see the Father. The Father is spirit. He is the Father of lights. And he's enshrouded in holiness. No one can behold the Father. The Son is the Father's agent and representative. The Son is the expression of God the Father. Look in John 12, verse 36. Interesting connections to the Old Testament. John 12, 36. Now this is speaking of Christ after the people rejected him. This is when Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. And though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed when he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart, and turn and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Whose glory did Isaiah see? Who's him? Christ, right? The context here is speaking of Christ. Isaiah prophesied of Christ. And John is saying Isaiah could say this because he saw him and he saw his glory. Well, let's, let's take a look at that. Isaiah chapter 6. By the way, if you ever encounter a Jehovah's Witness, this would be a great passage to show them and correspond. In Isaiah chapter 6, we know the story. In the year that King Uzzah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon his throne, high and lifted up. His train of the robe filled the temple, and above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, and with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew, and one called to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. 
And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen what? The King, the Lord of glory, the Lord of hosts. So when Isaiah, when John tells us that Isaiah saw him and saw his glory, who did he see? The King, the Lord of hosts. It was Christ. Christ is the Son of God. The writers of the New Testament had no problem identifying Jesus as God. John chapter 20, verse 28, going back to John's Gospel, as I said, John is probably the foremost book for the best of evidence in affirming the deity of Christ. John chapter 20, verse 28, if somebody has that, you may read it. Anyone have it? Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. That's it. My Lord, my God. This is when Jesus showed him the his his hands and his he had the nail piercing. Remember doubting Thomas? When he finally beheld, he says, My Lord and my God. Theos, the word. No mistaking. John was inspired by the Spirit to write, He is both Lord and God. Titus 2.13. Can somebody read that? Anybody have Titus 2.13? Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Our great Paul, waiting our blessed hope our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And finally, Romans 9.5. Romans 9.5. Whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh, who is over all, God blessed forever, amen. Paul had no problem affirming that Jesus is God who is over all. I don't think there's no doubt that the apostles believed that Jesus was God. And Jesus is God, I should say. He is the one who was and is and is to come. He's eternally present. He's the great I am. And all throughout John's gospel, the seven I am statements themselves. What do the seven I am statements imply? Exodus 3.14, Moses. Right? Moses says to God, who should I tell them sent me? Say, I am sent you. What does Jesus say? I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the vine. I am uh, 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 the, the resurrection and the life. I am the way and the truth and the life. I am the bread that comes from heaven. I am. What did they say in their final statement to the Jews? Before Abraham was, I am. They knew exactly what he was referring to. Often in, um, in the New Testament as well, another word is used to refer to Christ, and that is the term kyrios. It's the word Lord, and it's often used in reference to Caesar in the ancient world, but in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it is used 6,814 times to refer to Jehovah 
in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the term kyrios. Well, that same word is used numerous times, voluminously, in the New Testament to refer to the Lord Jesus Christ, Kyrios, Jesus Christos. He is the Son of God. So I think the Bible's clear on the deity of the Son. But also the Holy Spirit <clears throat> is fully God. Now there are people who, who, who buckle here. You know, they describe the Holy Spirit as an impersonal force. Or it's the force of God, like, you know, Star Wars. You're going to, you know, shoot some energy out of your hands and God's energy. Nothing of the kind. Uh, the scripture refers to the person of the Holy Spirit as a real personal being. And he is equally God and fully God, just as the Son and of the Father. I think this is clear in Acts chapter 5. If you turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5, we read the story of Ananias and Sapphira. We know that they uh, brought the proceeds in and held back a little for themselves. And Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie <clears throat> to the Holy Spirit? And to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. While it remained unsold, did it not remain to your own after it was sold? Was it not your disposal? What is this that you've contrived, this deed in your heart? Have you not lied to man but to God? And when Ananias heard these words, he fell and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all those who heard it. You didn't lie to man. You lied to the Holy Spirit. You lied to God. By the way, you cannot lie to an impersonal force. You cannot deceive a force. You can only deceive a person. Well, in his own fool folly, he thought he could deceive God. Anybody who thinks they could lie to God is a fool, right? That's why he died. Psalm 139. Let's turn, my, turn your Bibles to Psalm 139 in the Old Testament. Psalm 139, 7 through 8. And David in his, his great psalm revealing the omnipotence and omniscience and omnipresence of God. says, where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? <laughs> Think about that for a minute. He's speaking to the spirit of God. Where shall I go? How can I flee from you? There the spirit of God is. God's spirit is omnipresent. There's nowhere we can hide from the presence of God. Uh, look at Isaiah 11.2. Prophet Isaiah 11.2. We're truly doing a Bible study, aren't we? Isaiah 11.2 is a messianic prophecy. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord, speaking of Christ. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. And so we see that the spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, possesses the quality of divinity. The spirit is seen as omniscient. The spirit is all-knowing. Only God is all-knowing, right? We speak of omniscience, only God is all-knowing. 
We know that the Son is all-knowing. Remember when Christ was in, in John chapter 2, saw uh, um, uh, uh, Bartholomew, uh, no, um, Nathaniel. He was by the fig tree praying. He says, I saw you by the fig tree praying. Well, how could you see me? You were there. He's Christ. He's the Son of God. He's omnipresent. He's omniscient. These are the qualities of divinity. We see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. We talk about the omniscience, the all-knowing quality of God in the person of the Holy Spirit. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 10 and 11, for the, the, these things God has revealed to us through what? The Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God, for who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him. So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand these things freely given to us by God. The Holy Spirit is seen as eternal. Chapter 9, verse 4, and nearly 100 times, Scripture calls him holy. He's not just the Spirit, he is the Holy Spirit. The only being who is attributed the character of holiness is God. Thrice holy, 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 Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Like the Father and Son, he judges all creatures, John 16, 8 through 11. He is the giver of life, both physical and spiritual. We know that he is the one who raises us from the spiritual dead. John 3, 5 through 7 tells us it is this Holy Spirit that brings about the new birth. The Spirit confers gifts on people in 1 Corinthians 12, 6 and 11. And Ephesians 4.30 tells us the Holy Spirit can be grieved. We are told, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God in whom you were sealed. How, what does it mean to grieve the Holy Spirit and how could we grieve the Holy Spirit? And by the way, can you grieve a force? You can only grieve a person, right? What does it mean to grieve the Holy Spirit? Go ahead, Anne-Marie. To disobey the Spirit. To disobey the Spirit. To not believe. To not believe. Anyone else? Rick? Uh, sounds like grief is about mourning. He's suffering. He's actually very sad. Yeah. Grieving means to make sad, right? Like, like as a parent, right? You love your children, but when they, when they displease you or when they don't do what's right, it grieves you, right? It, it saddens you. You want the best... For your kids, well, the Holy Spirit, in the same way, grieves when we are not doing what's right. What's right? The Holy Spirit dwells in us personally, and so we grieve and offend the Spirit when we use the body, the temple of the Holy Spirit, as instruments for sin. If God is living in us, how do you think the Spirit of God feels when we when we curse or when we get an outburst of wrath or when we're filled with enmity or? or when we lie, or when we hurt someone, or when we steal, or when we uh, uh, look lustfully at someone when we ought not to, that grieves the Spirit of God within. And you won't know it unless you're filled with the Holy Spirit. See, if you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you're going to feel it. It'll be real. See, Bob, I never felt anything like that. 
maybe the spirit doesn't dwell in you. I can, I can attest it. It's a very palpable experience. Just, just to interrupt, but it's the same experience when, like, when I was a kid and I did something wrong and I knew my family was disgusted with me. It's that same feeling. So when we grieve God, the Holy Spirit, it's a state that is in upset with us. We're hurting him. He's um, grieving. And when we confess our sins, first John 1 says that we're, God is faithful to give us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So are we completely pardoned when we confess? We're completely pardoned from the day we're justified. But in this, now that we have the Spirit of God in us, we're adopted through the Spirit into the family of God. We're children of God. God doesn't disown his children. But God could be displeased with his children. When I was reading 1 Corinthians 11 today, the warning about the Lord's Supper, it says if we don't judge ourselves correctly, God will judge us. That's a warning. It's basically saying if we can't identify the sin in our life that grieves God, and repent of it. God loves us so much. He's not going to disown us. You're not going to lose your salvation. But he will discipline us. And that discipline could be painful at times. God may discipline us through temporal sickness, as it says there. Some of you are sick, and some of you even die. You know, when, when you get sick, physically sick, it's good to ask yourself, have I sinned against God that he's brought this sickness upon me? I know I do. God could bring discipline in other ways. And if you belong to God and you're his child, he will discipline you. If you don't belong to God, like if you're sitting there saying, I've gotten away with so much in my life. I, I wouldn't see that as a relief. I would see that as something to scare you because Hebrews 12 says, he whom he loves, he disciplines. And if you're not disciplined, it says... In the King James Version, you're a bastard. It means you're not a child. You're an illegitimate child. So go ahead. You know, you sit there and say, I'm getting away with it. You're really saying, I'm a bastard child. I don't belong to God. Because it's storing up for judgment day. So when God deals with us, it's a good thing. We say, thank you, Lord. I thank you. You love me so much. You're dealing with my sin. I know, I know that I'm still yours. I know I'm still in your plan. That God didn't discipline me. Then, it, that, then you have something to worry about. Go ahead, Michelle. Amen. It's the Holy, again, Holy Spirit is teacher. We see this as, as the, the function of the Holy Spirit. A force can't teach you. A person teaches you. And we see all this as, as the role of the, the person of the Holy Spirit. Um, the Holy Spirit is our counselor. As Michelle just mentioned, the word parakletos. Paraclete um, is active. It's teaching. It's testifying. It's convicting. It's guiding. Making known truth. These are all referred to John 14, 26, 15, 26, 16, 8, 16, 13, 16, 14. The word parakletos means counselor. Uh, it means uh, uh, encourager, strengthener. 
and it is, it is he, the Holy Spirit. And it's interesting, Jesus, well, I should say that John, in writing the word parakletos in Greek, never uses the neuter word or neuter pronouns, but always uses the masculine pronoun and the masculine word when referring to the Holy Spirit. Even when the word pneuma is used, which means breath of God or spirit, it's always used in a masculine form, demonstrating that this is speaking of divine personhood. We're born again. It is the Spirit who gives us birth. It is the Spirit who sanctifies. We're going to talk a little bit more about the functions of the Trinity. So we see that each person, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are fully God, and yet there is one God. There is unity within the Godhead. We believe there is only one God, not three gods. If we believed in three gods, we would be polytheists. We are monotheists. We believe in one true and living God. God. There is no other God but Yahweh. And Yahweh exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There is no division within the Godhead, but there is unity. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are one in mind, one in heart, and one in will. What did Jesus say? I always do what's pleasing to the Father. I don't do anything unless the Father tells me. There is, there is also within the Godhead order. Um, let's talk about the economic trinity now. What does economic trinity mean? Well, we talked about ontological trinity. We talked about who God is. These are fancy theological words, right? Ontological and economic Ontological speaks of who God is, his essence, his substance, his being, his nature. The economic tree speaks about what God does. These two terms present the paradox of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, sharing one nature, but are different persons and have different roles. Essentially, there's unity, but distinctiveness Right? So when I say distinctiveness, is that we ought not to confuse the Father and the Son, and the Son and the Spirit, and the Spirit and the Father. The Father is not the Spirit, the Spirit is not the Father, the Son is not the Spirit, and the Father is not the Son. We are three distinct persons with three distinct roles that work and cooperate together within the Godhead. And so, for instance we see these aspects. The Father decrees. Genesis 1.1 God created the heavens and the earth. It was God's decree as the divine architect. God the Father as the grand architect, the wise designer of creation. He is the grand architect and designer of salvation. And he's the grand architect of salvation. That is why when I spoke in my sermon, we give thanks to God the Father, because everything is planned and decreed by God the Father. God and Father is the one who decrees. The Son creates. When we talk about creation, 
the Son creates. Colossians 1, 16 and 17, we just looked at. John 1, 1. It is the Son who is the agent of the creation. It is the Son who speaks forth, let there be light. It is the Son who speaks forth, let us make man in our image. It is the Son who brings about creation. And it is the Spirit of God who sustains creation. The Spirit of God sustains creation. Look back in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. So we see in creation all three persons of the Godhead working in harmony. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. As we know from the rest of Scripture, that is the Holy Spirit through providence that upholds the created order of the universe. It is by the Holy Spirit that evil is restrained in this world that the world is not as evil as it could possibly be. It is by the Holy Spirit that God is calling the elect to himself through the ministry of the word and through regeneration. And that brings us to salvation. So let's look at the role, the economic role of the Father, Son, and the Spirit in salvation. Can anyone take a guess what the Father's role is? He calls. And what does he do before he calls? What does God the Father do? He chose. God elected. God the Father is the one who, who, who elects. He is the one who makes the sovereign choice. Let's look at Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 through 5. Ephesians 1, 4 through 5. Well, I'll start in verse 3. Blessed be God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he, that is God the Father, chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Verse 5. He predestined us for adoption of sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace. God the Father elects. God the Father chooses. Because somebody, I had tissues here. I don't know what I did. Let me see. I still have a remnant of a cold. Pardon me. And so God the Father elects from eternity past. His plan of election and predestination is solely according to the counsel of his will. Before the foundations of the world tells us something about our election. It was before anything existed. It was before you and I existed. Before the material universe existed. We don't know what existed before the material universe. It was just God. And I said before anything existed, God chose us in him before the foundations of the world. Think about that. God set his heart on you. He knew you. He loved you before the world was even created. Try to grasp that. Get your head around that one. It is the Son who redeems. It is the Son who carries out the Father's plan. In verse 7 it says, In Him we have redemption. This is Ephesians 1. We have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, 
which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and on earth. It is the Son who redeems us. It is the sin who purchases us. It is the, it is the, the, the sin, the Son who goes to the cross and dies for us. It is, it is the Son who gives his life as a ransom. The, the, son of, the, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. It is the Son who came to this world to be our sin bearer, to be the Lamb of God, to be our substitute, to be our atoning sacrifice. It is the Son who carries out the plan of the Father. You look through John's Gospel, for instance, and you start to realize the doctrine of limited atonement is crystal clear. Did Jesus come to save every human being from their sins? Nope. He came to save the elect, God's sheep. Look at me in John 6. Verse 38. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he's given me, but raise it up on the last day. This is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Do you see that? Do you see the importance of this? The Father's plan was to choose a group of people from before eternity passed. And this group of people whom he loved and set apart for his purpose, he sends the Son. And the Son came to do the will of the Father. And the will of the Father is that the Son would rescue and redeem and give life to this group of sinners whom God chose to save from before eternity passed. Mind-blowing. This brings up the whole doctrine of infralapsarianism to supralapsarianism. Fancy words. My daughter Elizabeth just learned one the other night at youth group in North Shore Baptist Church. Um, that's what they're teaching the youth. Isn't that great? We don't even know what those words are. Um, but the question, did God know before he created man that man would sin? Yes or no? All right, so then the plan, absolutely. So the plan of salvation was that God made it before he created man because he knew man was going to fall. The plan of redemption was planned out in eternity past before man even fell into sin. And then we get into the ethical or conundrum, well, then why did God create man? I'm not here to answer that today. It's a long theological thought, but we know that once again, we kind of rest on the argument Paul makes in the end of Romans 9. God is the potter, we're the clay. What right does the clay have to say to the potter? Why did you make me this way? We must know our place as the creature. There's some things we won't have answers to. What we should really be asking is, why did God save me? The Spirit regenerates. The Spirit's role in salvation is to regenerate 
and take the work of Christ and apply it to the believer. John chapter 3 speaks of the new birth. Jesus says the spirit comes and goes. You don't know where it's coming from, where it's going. So it is, as just as it is with the wind, so it is with the spirit of God. And so is the new birth. It is the work of the spirit to bring about regeneration. Look at Titus chapter 3. We were looking at this the other day in Bible study from a different perspective of the natural state of man apart from Christ, but Titus speaks about the work of the Spirit too. It says in verse 5, He saved us not because, Titus 3, 5, Titus 3, 5, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. It is the Spirit who regenerates, who brings about the new birth. What else does the Spirit do? Is the Spirit sanctifies us. The Spirit ultimately glorifies us. And so the Holy Spirit's role is to take us from the new birth to heaven through this life and to transform us into the image of Christ. The Holy Spirit takes residence in our lives. And by his indwelling presence, little by little, transforms us into the image of Christ. He's preparing us for heaven. So would that, what, I'm sorry? Would that mean that uh, the Holy Spirit takes presence in us and all three are present in us, present in us as a result? Yeah, I mean, um, well, how can I put it? Jesus in his high priestly prayer, let, let's look at that. The best way I could describe that is the high priestly prayer of John 17. Best way I could answer that. Listen to verse 20. I do not ask only for these, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I am in you, you are in me, they are in us. It's called, it's called our union with Christ through the Spirit. When the Spirit comes to take residence in our life, we are one with Christ. Like, like husband and wife become one in marriage, two become one flesh. We become one with Christ. Christ is the bridegroom, we're the bride. And we become one with Christ through the Spirit. And Christ is one with the Father. The Trinity is not separated it's not three gods, it's one God. So yes, in essence, when we become born again and the Spirit of God comes into our lives, we have now a relationship, a communion with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We cry out to the Father in the name of Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, 
We also notice that in the Bible, there is subordination within the Godhead. The Son yields to the Father, and the Spirit yields to the Son and the Father. The Spirit is not over the Son and the Father, nor is the Son over the Father. But if the Father is over the Son and the Son is over the Spirit, Father and Son are over the Spirit. What this shows us is that there's also divine order within the Godhead. It doesn't mean that any person of the Godhead is lesser. All are equal in God, equal in divinity, equal in power, equal in authority, equal in substance. But there is order. The Father decrees the Son and the Spirit follow. The Spirit doesn't decree to the Father and the Son. And consequently, 1 Corinthians 11 tells us the model of marriage. God created male and female in his image, husband and wife, and there's order within the home. And in that order, it reflects the divine order of the God. It doesn't lessen one person's role over the other, but complementary roles to one another that glorify God. So that an- I think that answers the question I had coming about why it says in Matthew 24, 36, that, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. Well, I think also when Jesus said that, he was saying that from his humanity. He was, he was in, in, in the incarnated state. So... I think what he's saying at that moment in his public ministry, he doesn't know the day or hour. But I'm certain in his glorified state now, the Son of God knows perfectly well the day and hour of his return. Maybe upon us any day. And I, I think, you know, I think we're far too dull spiritually by busyness, by work, by the stress of life. And you know what that's all meant for? Entertainment. To distract you from something. It's to distract. We, we want to be distracted because the one distraction that, the one thing we don't want to think about is dying. And it's something every one of us has to do. But we don't like to think about it, right? It's a conversation we don't want to have, a ponder, so we distract ourselves. We, yeah, let me, let, I have something to do. Oh, I, let me let me go check that email. Let me let me watch that that program. I'll play the video game I like. Death. We're we're all scared of death, aren't we? Even as Christians, there's a certain fear of death, and so we avoid the topic altogether. But the reality is, we're all going to die. We're all going to face judgment. And I think if we're alert to the spirit and we see the way things are today, I don't know about you guys, but I wonder how much longer the world could last. But things could get a lot worse. You think things are bad? It can get a lot worse. Look at Florida. That can happen worldwide. Take for a minute. Did did you ever consider, it was about three, four months ago, New York City was giving public service announcements on what to do in case of a nuclear um, bomb going off. Do you remember that? It was a few months ago. Why in the world is New York City giving a public service announcement of what to do in case of a nuclear attack. Did you ever think about that? You think they, they just said, we got nothing better to do, let's do a service announcement on a nuclear attack. There's obviously some kind of intelligence that something may happen 
you have uh, Putin over there, who's clearly out of his mind, and he's threatened to new nuclear weapons. Yeah, what would happen? Oh, it would never happen. I never thought there'd be a pandemic two years ago. When they said you're locked in your house and you can't go out and there's a pandemic and thousands of people are dying, I was like, who thought that would ever happen? If you told me that three years ago, I would have laughed at you. But you know what it made me realize? Not anything could happen. You see what Florida looks like? If a nuke ever hit New York City, it would look like that from here all the way to Poughkeepsie. That's, uh, yeah, that'll happen. So, so this is something we have to realize is that, you know, these are the bigger matters in life, eternal matters, the things of God. I confess I get distracted myself. But I'm aware and I'm alert to the way things are. And I realize things can go south real quick. Tomorrow's not promised. The stability of society is not promised. Your life is not promised. You can get a cancer diagnosis tomorrow. You have six months to live. Then what? I'll live for God. Why not now? And so the Holy Spirit proceeds forth from the Father and the Son, and He's carrying out the purposes and work of God. And finally, we talk about mutual glorification. The unity and oneness amount of the three persons of the Godhead affirm that there's no conflict with the Trinity. They are respectfully agreed on what they should do and support one another and promote each other's purposes. There's no division within the Godhead. All right. Um, false views of the Trinity. I'm going to go through just a few of them real quick. Um, no racer. All right. Yeah. Oh, I don't even have to erase all. All right. So, so I'm going to give you a few of the basic um, errors. The most classic one is Arianism. Anybody knows what Arianism is? Anybody tell me what Arianism is? It's not not Arianism like you know white supremacists. It's Arianism is a doctrine. Anybody know what Arianism is? It was, it was developed by a man named Arias, who was an early bishop in the early church. And Arias was really the progenitor of what the modern-day Watchtower organization is. Arias did not believe that Jesus was the eternal Son of God, but he believed that Jesus was created and was like a demigod. He wasn't... He wasn't like an angel, like a human. He was greater than the angels, but not God. He was somewhere in the middle, like a demigod. And um, he said, well, I think it's Michael, the archangel. And so therefore, they, uh, Arius taught that Jesus, you know, that God is one God, that's Jehovah, and that, you know, the Son is this created being, but he, he's a created being whom God has put over creation, and that we're to submit to him. He, he's the Messiah, he's the Lord. Um, and the spirit is the force. It's, it's classical Arianism. It's, it, you, know, um, you know, Watchtower, Jehovah's Witnesses, they, they're not original. They didn't come up with this on their own. 
This was something that was borrowed right out from ancient. And by the way, all heresies eventually just kind of resurface in different forms. They just put on different clothing, right? Uh, can anybody tell me another heresy, another Trinitarian heresy? Anybody know one? Well, Mari said it before, modalism. Anybody know what modalism is? Modalism. It's the idea that it's one God who manifests in three different modes. So the typical explanation of the holy, uh, I mean, of uh, the modalist is, well, think of liquid, think of water, H2O. It has three modes, liquid, ice, and vapor, but it's still H2O. That's heresy. It might be a nice illustration, but what you're saying is that God will manifest or have a different mode, but yet, at Jesus' baptism, we see that denied. It was the Father who spoke from heaven, Behold my Son in whom I am well pleased. It was the Son who was being baptized, and the Holy Spirit visibly descended on him in the form of a dove. All three persons of the Godhead present at once. Modalism is also happened to be the T.D. Jakes heresy. Also referred to as Sibelianism. Sibelianism. Um, Sibelius taught that God would wear different masks. There's dynamic modalism. Adoptionism is also referred to. And this is um, the doctrine where the eternal logos descended upon Jesus of Nazareth at his baptism or his resurrection, depending on how you look at it, and made him the son of God. So that Jesus of Nazareth was an ordinary man, born of a human father and a human mother, and that the Lagos, the spirit of the Lagos, descended upon him and made him the son of God at his baptism. And it's just crazy. And then finally, there's tritheism. And that is there are three different gods who all have the same nature and substance and work together for one purpose. These are all heresies. And so with that said, we can look at most religions today um, that are not Trinitarian are absolutely heretical and should be rejected. Jehovah's Witnesses are not Christians. They do not believe in the same God we believe in. Neither are Mormons. But Mormons are even worse. Mormons believe that Jehovah was one time a human being like us, and then he became a god, and he got his own planet, and then eventually he got his own universe, and he had two sons, Lucifer and Jesus, and they were two brothers who had a sibling rivalry, and then we get, and if, and if you're a good enough person, when you die, you'll get your own planet, and eventually you'll get a universe that you could rule over. I mean, George Lucas had a better story. Okay? One is Pentecostals, Unitarians, and even the Church of Christ, I believe, is definitely um, wrong in their view of the Holy Spirit. Go ahead, Emery. You want to comment from your background? Yeah, the Church of Christ cannot speak about the Holy Spirit. Yeah. It doesn't even acknowledge it. Right. They deny, the, they deny the person of the Holy Spirit and the function of the Spirit. And so the Church of Christ, likewise, is at its core heretical. So... When you meet Mormons, Jehovah's Witness, Church of Christ, these people are on the false doctrine. They're on the heresy. No matter how nice, no matter how good they are, they're believing in a lie. And the problem with denying the Trinity is this. You're lying about who God is. You're denying his fundamental nature. 
You're denying his fundamental revelation. To do that ultimately undermines the gospel. So it doesn't matter how religious or how good you are, you deny this fundamental truth, you're lost. No. Unpardonable sin. The unpardonable sin is attributing the work of God to the devil. Yeah, they're good Trinitarians. The Catholics are excellent Trinitarians. That's what makes it so hard, is because if anyone's got the Trinitarianism down, it's the Roman Catholic Church. They are astute Trinitarians. And so in some ways, say, well, then there are brothers and sisters, and that's where the, the conflict is. Historically, when we talk about historical orthodoxy, Catholic Church, great. It's when we get into the doctrine of salvation, that's where we depart. That's where the error is. And by the way, there's a lot of Reformed Christians that are moving towards Roman Catholicism. I don't know if you know this or not. Huh? Francis Chan, who else? Yeah. Yeah. Of course, like you said, we separate on the um, salvation. So would you say, uh, as Catholic, uh, that we worship the same God as They believe in a God of works. We worship the same God. They, they believe in, in, in they, they, they have the right understanding of who God is, they have a wrong understanding of the plan of salvation. Yeah. So they, they, they're idolaters. Really, totally, you know, they, they eliminate the second commandment. If you go to any Catholic church or Catholic school and they have the Ten Commandments, they actually erase the second commandment and then they turn the Tenth Commandment into two separate commandments. Don't covet your neighbor's wife and then the Tenth Commandment, don't covet anything of your neighbor's. It's a, it's a total rewriting of the Ten Commandments because there's idols all over a Catholic church and they bow and worship before Mary and the saints. It's wickedness. They're guilty of gross idolatry and they spread a gospel that's false and heretical. There is no good news. It's a, it's a gospel you've got to work to earn your salvation and if you don't do good enough, you go to purgatory, spend a couple thousand years in hard labor purging the remaining sin in you till you're good enough to qualify for heaven. Or people can buy your way over to heaven. And you can buy your way with a few indulgences and too and knock off some years off your purgatory sentence. Well, what the Catholic Church gets wrong, the reason why I'm saying a lot of Reformed Christians are swinging that way lately, is because the Roman Catholic Church, they don't deny grace. They don't deny grace. They believe that grace is infused, not imputed, or that righteousness is, is infused, not imputed, and that it's up to you to maintain the grace. It's up to you. God gives you, God saves you by his grace. And there's like an initial work of salvation. And then it's up to you to maintain through good works. And a lot of Reformed people are starting to move that way because they're, 
It started with the new perspective of Paul, Second Temple Judaism, and this idea that, in, that the Jews of the first century didn't believe in salvation by works, but they believed in salvation by grace, but that good works needed to be added to it in order to, to complete the salvation. And then there's a whole new movement that in the last 20 years it's, uh, went side by side with the new perspective called Federal Vision Theology. And it's likewise, it, it focuses more on works than it does on grace. And so the idea is a lot of reformers are moving away from traditional Lutheranism of the justification by faith alone, by, by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And they're look, saying, well, what about works? And so we're seeing that there's, there's been a shift and it's not good. It's not that God will deny works, but works and grace is like I am water. They don't come together. Because it's by grace that we are saved. Through faith. There is works of salvation. But it's we are we are saved. But the works are the evidence of our salvation. Yeah, but we're not saved by works. Right. The the the, the works we don't works don't contribute to salvation, but they're evidence of our salvation. And that's the distinction. And so that's where the Catholic Church gets it wrong. Because the Catholic Church believes that good works add to your salvation. Go ahead, Anna Marie. Yeah, I was just wondering, so how do they explain 2 Corinthians 12, where he says, my grace is sufficient? You know, as they're, they're theologians. There's a lot of long explanation for it. <laughs> I, I Honestly, when it gets into deep, deep theology like that, I haven't studied it in a while. Um, I just recently started, I, I had forgotten what Federal Vision is, till some, I saw it recently online, and I'm, I'm, I had to re, kind of refresh myself on a lot of this. But it's all basically moving away from, from grace alone to works-based salvation. It's an artificial conflict. James never says that we're saved, um, saved by works. It's he says, you know, show me your faith, and I'll show you my faith by my works. In other words, faith is never alone. No. Living active faith will always produce good works. The good tree bears good fruit. The bad tree bears bad fruit. If you're a good tree and you have living active faith, you're going to bear fruits of salvation. You're going to be, I preached this two weeks ago, bearing fruitful and good works. It's the evidence of salvation. And that's what James is saying. And, what it's, and, 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 I, and, and we agree, and I think Paul would confirm that. Paul, Paul says, make your calling and election sure. Why? And what does he say? No one who practices such things will inherit the kingdom of God. You can't just say, I believe, and then live like a pagan and think you're going to heaven. There's, there has to be life. There's, faith produces obedience, and obedience produces good works. It doesn't make us saved, but it, it's the evidence and the fruit of salvation. You know what's interesting, Pastor Bob, is you would expect that those who emphasize works over grace would be living more in, under obedience than those who emphasize grace, but as, as a Christian who's been... Different kinds of churches, 
the churches who, I, I've found that in churches that preach more works than grace, <laughs> that the Christians tend to be more worldly. Oh, yeah. More removed. And, and again, I'm a former Catholic also. Some I am. And, 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 but the idea of obedience, it, it just hit me now how it, in, in practical life, it doesn't even result, you know, that, that heresy of, of works, right? Righteousness doesn't even result in obedience. It doesn't. It, what, what it does is, ultimately, it results in Jesus being removed from your life as much as possible so you can continue living in the world. Yeah. It's the idea that Jesus starts this work. It's up to you to complete it. Yeah. I was reading five so last week, four last, last so last recently, and they, they also think that the works, old works of the saints and old works of Mary have, are part of the salvation. That adds to well, it. it's called the treasury of merit, right? If you understand Roman Catholicism, they have something called the treasury of merit. So in order to get to heaven, you need merit. And, and most of us don't have enough merit. People who are saints, who are um, by the church and canonized as saints, those are people with a lot of merit. They get to heaven. And what happens is people like that, Mary, the apostles... They have so much merit that they have some left over that they don't need. So this merit is stored in something called the treasury of merit. And the Pope, you know where, where we have to end, but I'll just end on this. The Pope says, that, you know when Jesus says, I'll give you the keys to the kingdom of God, whatever you bound shall be bound, loose shall be loose. That's believed in the Roman Catholicism that the Pope, who is the direct line of the apostles, has the keys to the treasury of merit. And so if you need a little extra merit to get to heaven, you pay the church, and the Pope opens the treasury, gives you some merit, prays for you, and you go to heaven. That's what the indulgence is. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, thank you that we are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord, that we don't have to be in some terrible system of works. Thank you, triune God, for saving us from before eternity past, redeeming us on the cross and applying salvation to our hearts. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Holy Spirit. I pray that this great plan of salvation would manifest in our lives and good works to your glory and praise in Jesus' name. Amen.